probability that one or more team members may be infected by intruder organism. 75%. If intruder organism reaches civilized areas, entire world population infected 27,000 hours from first contact. Welcome back to the Thing Minute podcast. We discuss John Carpenter's 1982 science fiction horror masterpiece, The Thing, one minute at a time. I'm Harper Debbie Harris from HarperWHarris.com, and joining me again today is... I'm Alan Sanders. Thanks for having me back. Uh, you can hear me on radio. That's kind of where I get my background in broadcast on WBHF or WSB, both in the Atlanta area, and uh, owner of HASProductions.com, where I've done a little bit of video work myself, as well as some web work. So love love this kind of genre. And Harper, thank you so much for inviting me to be part of this ongoing project. Yeah, of course. Definitely. So today we are talking about minute 37 of The Thing, which begins with uh, Blair standing in the back of the room while the rest of the gang watches uh, the Norwegian VHS tape. And then it ends a minute later with uh, an explosion happening on the TV screen on that, uh, on that VHS tape. This minute is another kind of uh, self-contained scene, although it does uh, carry over a little bit into the, the next minute, but mostly has these guys kind of watching over this tape. The, the first thing I thought would be fun to kind of mention is that uh, this, the stuff on this tape are actually some of the first things they filmed for the movie. They filmed it before most of the cast had even been uh, hired for the movie. So I believe all of these guys playing the Norwegians are just people on the crew. A lot of the producers, John Carpenter is one of these guys, I think. And uh, we, we've mentioned it before as something we'll, we'll come back to. Dick Warlock, who is one of the main stuntmen on the movie, he shows up, I think, more than anybody else in this movie. He's, he's all over the place. Um, and he is definitely one of these Norwegians. Um, I've, I've heard that he might be the one who's waving in the background when they're standing over the edge of the, the saucer. So just another Dick Warlock sighting. It's <laughs> kind of cool, too, when you think about uh, the production and pre-production, because I know one of the things John Carpenter said about this movie that was different up until this point in his film career is how much time he had for pre-production mm-hmm. and to be able to do these smaller things to really map things out, get storyboards, start really thinking through some of the visual effects and to have this much work done even before principal casting. Maybe that's part of the reason why such so much of this worked so fluidly uh, because I know they were making up a lot of the visual effects as they went along, but they had a lot of that pre-production work, that artwork, the, the direction, the design already set and that as a director, uh, that always helps when you, once you get on set because let's face it, things change. You get on set and you go, oh, not quite exactly as I envisioned it. So now you got to kind of let's put the camera here instead. Let's move the actors here. But when you have a lot of that work already done, it makes those little tweaks so much easier. Yeah, that's definitely true. You know, as as both of us have kind of you know worked on productions and things like that, but. You know, it's there's always a balance between kind of the business of it in, in terms of just, you know, you have to get it done one way or the other. And also the creative side where, you know, you might get on set and see, oh, well, you know, looking at it from this angle might actually be much better or much uh, might benefit the project in a, in a different way. But, you know, it, there's always a balance between doing that and getting creative and getting it done. And so having that pre-production time can make a huge difference because you can start to get an idea and, and storyboard or go out to the locations. And, you know, some of those creative choices you can make earlier on so that when you get on set and get ready to actually film with the entire crew, with all these actors and everything, you can kind of make those moves a little faster. 
You know, one of the things I really love, and if you go to like a between the eighth and ninth second, when you get when you finally pull away from the TV and you see the first sort of like ensemble shot, if you were to just pause it right there, it's almost like a painting where you've got the dark foreground to kind of frame the bottom edge. Everything behind them is brighter and lit. And it's, it's almost like you're looking at a Last Supper painting or a, a visual of that. They're all sort of staring at a central figure. You've got the bearded Kurt Russell in the middle. And you've got the uh, the guy who is kind of wary of everyone, almost like the Judas or something, off to the side, you know, kind of leaning back and, again, at the back of the room with Dr. Blair. I'm not suggesting that, you know, we've got the Last Supper painting here. But <laughs> it, it's visually, when you look at the, the composition of this particular shot and that – will continue through the rest of this minute whenever they do the wide shot. It's look at the where the actors are blocked. It all looks natural and yet it's telling a story where you see Blair to the one side, you see everyone with rapt attention, you know, it it just it's such a beautiful image. Like this could have like be a poster that you could just take a screen grab and say this is, you know, a scene from the thing. Yeah, you're right. This is not not a not a shot I've ever really looked that closely at, but and it's not one that that you know people really post up very often. But you're right; it is really really well well composed and shot, and it it gives you a view of you know this is the majority of the people at the camp. Um, this is almost everybody, and it does have that nice kind of framing device of you know that we're behind the the TV and behind that that desk, which is another John Carpenter thing of you know having that stuff in the foreground, which kind of creates almost a voyeuristic sense that we're watching them behind something else. We're not you know right up in their faces or anything like that. Exactly, it's one of those subtle things that almost is pulling us in like we're sort of maybe one of the other people in the room and i love that yeah definitely and and i know john carpenter always in in the commentary for the movie he talks about how the scenes where it's just a whole bunch of guys talking to each, each other were the scenes he was most worried about because it's it is really difficult to kind of frame something like this and make it interesting and not you know, e- either do it wide and figure out a way to fit everybody in and make it visually interesting or just do a bunch of close-ups where you run into the the problem of it just becoming a bunch of talking heads, you know, jabbering back and forth to each other. And that's not very visually interesting either. So, yeah, he does a really good job here of, like you say, kind of placing you in the action while at the same kind of time kind of framing these guys. And you do get that sense that this is, um, you know, it is almost like a painting or something where you get uh, everybody kind of at once and they're all blocked in a way that, it's, it is very natural, but at the same time, you can see everybody and you can tell what, what's going through everybody's heads in some ways. And yeah, it's really, really well done. What I like, and if, as we continue on to about the 30th second here in this particular minute, mm-hmm. when it becomes nearly a two shot of just McCready, uh, McCready and, um, McCready and uh, uh, Norris, you still have the other two guys behind them. Mm-hmm. So you've got a two shot, but you've got people overlooking the two shots. So you still get this voyeuristic sense that we're watching them. They're watching the two people talking. And again, you do, for me, I don't, I've never been a, I've never had a problem with dialogue if the dialogue's motivated and it's interesting. So I know John Carpenter was worried about some of these scenes, but to me, these are the ones I really enjoy because we get a sense of who all these guys are in the room. Who's afraid to talk? Who's not? Who's the thinker? Who's going to jump to conclusions? Who's the hothead? Uh, and it really gives us a sense of this ensemble cast of like everyone's a unique individual instead of all kind of looking like the same character by the end. Yeah, definitely. This is, you know, as, as things start to, you know, heat up and really, you know, the dangerous stuff starts happening and everything, you do kind of get a better sense of who these characters are because, you know, it's a cast of, of 12 guys and, and in a lot of cases, 12 guys who are all wearing very similar 
you know, external winter gear. <laughs> so it's, it can be really hard for somebody who's never seen the movie to kind of tell these guys apart at the beginning. But as you start getting into this part of the movie, they do a really good job of differentiating the characters, like you say, with just kind of their, their different reactions to what's going on and, and just, you know, even their positions in the room, like with Blair, you know, the kind of thing that what's going through everybody's head. It's interesting you mentioned the number 12. Maybe there was something to Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper with the 12 apostles. Yeah, that's true. That is an interesting kind of, um, you know, comparison. I've never really thought about it that way. But yeah, yeah, 12 does apply there. Um, But uh, bringing up the dialogue, uh, this scene actually is so much more fascinating to me on watching it much, uh, you know, on a closer scale like this, because I never really noticed or thought about um, Benning's comments here. Um, So first... uh, you know, Bennings is first, he's complaining about how much the video he's like, you know, how much of this crap is there? And then uh, as they're, you know, after he answers that there's about nine hours, he's like, we can't learn anything from this. Like he jumps to that immediate conclusion, which to me, you know, I'd never really thought about it before, but to me, it seems very suspicious. It seems like he's trying to maybe throw off, um, you know, try and get everybody to stop paying attention because he doesn't want them to find something out on that video. And, and this is another time when you go back and start watching and the red herrings that are thrown at us, which ones are real, which ones are not. I mean, we talked about Clark earlier, alone with the dog, been around the dog. We realized the dog was a problem. Now all of a sudden it's like, well, who else could be a problem? When you, And you don't notice this the first time, but on subsequent viewings, once you know the story, you start saying, okay, am I being given a little hint here? Is this an Easter egg? Because if you remember, oh, actually, I think it's, it's uh, yeah, earlier – when the dog watched the guys come back with the burned bodies from the Norwegian camp, Mm -hmm. was just staring like you almost got the sense of like, "Uh uh-oh, okay, they're figuring it out. I might have to do something. You almost wonder, okay, is that why Benning's going like, ah, there's nothing to see here. Like, you know, I got to keep them away because they've already, they already know too much. Yeah. And I mean, we we know just obviously from watching the movie uh, before, we know that Benning's gets fully assimilated later on in a, you know, pretty dramatic scene, but (laughs) Um, it's there's definitely a possibility that he might have gotten infected earlier on with, you know, he's the first person that the dog kind of jumps on when they get, uh, when the dog arrives at the camp at the beginning. And, and then also there's that scene where the dog passes uh, under the table and scares him earlier on. So he's definitely had, you know, physical contact with it. And this is maybe the first hint that that infection is starting to spread and that, you know, maybe he's already, already, whether consciously or subconsciously kind of trying to deflect them from, from, you know, figuring out what's going on even more. Cause at this point they kind of think that they've probably defeated it because exactly. Yeah. They, they, you know, they burned down the dog creature in the last room and, you know, as far as they know, it's, it's dead and, and that's the end of it. And now they're just trying to figure out what the hell actually happened. So that, you know, everybody except for Blair kind of feels like the, maybe the threat is over. So yeah, I, I thought it was kind of interesting. I never really noticed you know, uh, the, the suspicion that's maybe thrown on Bennings in a really subtle way here. Well, and I think that's only something you look at when you're really starting to parse it and just look for those moments. And again, sometimes it's maybe and, and we'll see them as we continue on the exchange of, of looks or why does somebody kind of act the way they do? And sometimes it's totally natural because you're in an unnatural situation, but it keeps us second guessing, which I think also works to heighten the tension through the entire movie. Yeah, most definitely. Let's see, I need flares, a parka, kerosene, dog food. Wow, who knew moving to an Antarctic base would be so expensive? And I haven't even started looking for roller skates and giant hats yet. 
It's a good thing I'm using Amazon so I can get the best price and get this stuff fast. And since I'm using thethingminute.com slash Amazon, a small portion of my purchase goes to help The Thing Minute to help support the podcast. Now, if I can just get some of the listeners to use thethingminute.com slash Amazon, I might just be able to afford that flamethrower. So I thought it was interesting, too, to note in this scene when they talk about where this UFO site is, um, and Norris is talking about how, how far it is and where they were spending their time. He says that it's, uh, it's northeast of their camp, uh, five or six miles northeast of the, the Norwegian camp. Um, and it's interesting. I, I only really thought about this because I was looking at um, Outpost31.com. It's this uh, fantastic fan site for the movie that's just got tons and tons of information and, and stuff like that. They had kind of built this map of, uh, of kind of the area just based on the things that they say in the movie. And it is interesting because they're, earlier they fly southwest to get to the Norwegian camp, which means they almost should have flown directly over the UFO. And may, maybe it was just a, uh, you know, a matter of the weather being that they couldn't see it or they didn't notice it, or maybe even the smoke from the camp was kind of keeping them from seeing it. But I thought that was kind of interesting that for whatever reason, the way they kind of set up the, the distances and the directions of everything, that it places the UFO directly in the path between the two camps. <laughs> That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that in terms of the, uh, the the geographic layout of where the Norwegian camp was, where the crash site of the UFO and where this current U.S. camp is located. But I, I guess it's one of those things where when you're watching the movie, you just kind of hear northeast, southeast, but you don't think about it. Right. So you like start to map it out. Yeah. And, and the other thing that uh, came to mind when I was looking at it, too, that I, I never really thought about was – because of that, that means that also when the dog ran from the Norwegian base to the American base, it ran right past its own ship. And so it, it would have had to. Yeah. So I, I wonder, you know, kind of a fan, fan theory thing. I wonder why the thing didn't return to its own ship and, and why it instead was heading towards this other base. Well, you know, what's I, I think there may be a reason for that coming up in the next minute or two is the fact that the Norwegians, when they planted the thermite, it looks like they must have damaged the ship uh, because they'll say a comment later and they blew it up. Yeah. So maybe there was something that couldn't be fixed for however long it was buried and whatever damage had happened thanks to the explosive charges. Yeah, that's true. And, and, and you know, I guess, you know disregarding the the prequel movie for all we know the the thing maybe did go to its ship and poke around and make sure that there wasn't anything it could salvage or whatever before it started running to the base so maybe you know maybe there's a little more to it there but yeah i just thought that was kind of interesting i never thought about it in terms of kind of the geography of of what's going on here i think that's always neat when fan sites and fans of movies can do that create the maps and try to really plot as though you know, this this really did happen. So where are all the, you know, latitude and longitude areas of, a, of, of the particular sightings? And it's just kind of neat to go back. Even if it doesn't work with the dialogue, it's still cool. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And, it, you know, it adds just a sense of kind of, you know, if it does work, then it adds a sense of realism. If it doesn't, then it's just like, oh, well, you know, oh, well, who cares? <laughs> yeah, but it gives us something to like explain. Well, oh, like you said, it was a bad windy day that day. It was all snow blindness. They couldn't see. They were too high up. There was mist on the ground, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> gives us a chance to, to be geeks and, uh, and you know, try and explain it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so I also, I, you know, just I think it's worth noting that um, I kind of like that they use this. Obviously, this I say it's an old TV, but at the time it probably was not an old TV. <laughs> but right. I, lo I love the look of the, the tape playing on the TV, too. And, and to me, it, it harkens back a little bit to Halloween, where, where on Halloween, the kids are watching Thing from Another World on their TV, very similar to this. So it, it always kind of reminds me of that, that bit from, uh, from that movie as well. 
you know, one of the things, and I just thought about it now, so I'm glad you said that. It reminds me of the fact that The Thing was actually a black and white movie that, that was originally done by Universal. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like we're watching – it wasn't, but obviously it's kind of hearkening back an image of the black and white film of The Thing that was shot in, I think, the late 50s. So uh, I think – Maybe it wasn't intentional, but all of a sudden I th- started thinking like, well, hey, I remember watching – after seeing John Carpenter's The Thing, I went back to watch the original The Thing and to see a black and white retelling or ver- or, or first telling, if you will. Um, it's just similar in the terms of the, the way it would have looked on television, the same four by three ratio. So interesting. Yeah, that's very – I never thought about that. That's a really good point that it is almost like they're watching that original movie because you know, in that movie it doesn't play out remotely the way this one does. And obviously in that movie, they're, they're not watching a tape of other guys blowing it up. They're the ones who go out there and, and blow it up. So yeah, this is very much like them watching that original movie. And, you know, and, and in the sense of, we talked a lot about it a couple weeks ago with the, um, the minutes where they're actually at the Norwegian base. It is very much like they're watching what's going to happen to them. They're seeing these guys who obviously they know at this point have not survived. So it is, there's kind of a sense of, foreboding and, and isolation and that they know that all these guys that they're they're watching and trying to figure out what they did did not make it um and for for the same reasons that that their camp is now under threat right and but of course as is it's typical of all you know heroic people they're like well whatever they did they did wrong we'll do it right <laughs> right <laughs> exactly yeah they, they can't just <laughs> this let won't it go. happen to us <laughs> <laughs> of course not <laughs> Cool. So I think that's that's more or less all I had for for this minute. Is there anything else you wanted to to bring up about this one? No, I, I will tell you one thing I do like. And again, it kind of more blends into the next minute. But you, we, we talked about how it ends with the explosion. Mm-hmm. What I like as we transition, if you watch, even though they're in the snow, they do that typical almost uh, footage of a nuclear attack when the camera, like the light of the explosion is so bright, everything dims. That wouldn't happen technically in the Arctic because everything's bright anyway. But the fact that they kind of make it almost reminiscent of the test footage of a nuclear explosion to sort of herald because when you see an explosion like this we think okay charges to you know move mountains or take down a you know rubble or whatever but whenever we see a nuclear explosion we think you know death and destruction the end of the world so i I know we'll talk about it in the next minute but if you watch it's almost like it's a purposeful thing to make it look more like a nuclear explosion or at least hearken the 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 uh the the, the destruction or the impending doom that we always associate with footage of an old atomic bomb versus just a, you know, seismic charges or something like this. Yeah, that's true. I, I always do notice that, that kind of odd dimming effect. And I always thought it kind of looked almost out of place, but when you put it in that context, it makes, makes a lot of sense that it definitely gives that kind of, it ups the, ups the stakes a little bit in a kind of a subtle, unconscious way. Mm-hmm. And I, I also like how the, the explosion does kind of look, it looks more like a firework than an actual like explosion that you'd think they would use to, to you know, melt the ice and get into something like this. It, it, it looks kind of old fashioned to me, that shot does too, which, um, you know, again, plays into the maybe looking a little bit like the old movie. Absolutely. So... Cool. Uh, well, I think that will that will probably wrap up uh, minute thirty seven here of the movie. So um, don't forget that you can always check out the podcast on Facebook and Twitter as well under the Thing Minute. Um, so you can join in the conversation there, and you know that's, sometimes we'll post uh, you know interesting articles and videos and stuff like that too. So. Uh, don't forget to uh, you know follow us on those those spots, and then of course don't forget to come back tomorrow for another episode of the Thing Minute. Thanks for listening. 
If you enjoyed the show, please go to thethingminute.com. There you'll find the show notes with links to anything we talked about on this episode and lots of other resources on The Thing. You can also find us on Twitter at The Thing Minute and on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Thing Minute. But most importantly, subscribe, rate, and review us in iTunes so you'll never miss an episode. Check out other podcasts like this at moviesbyminutes.com and be sure to head over to starwarsminute.com to listen to the team that started it all. Thanks for listening, and until next time, this is Harper signing out.